Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Today's class is on the Jambali Sutta. Um, it's a rather obscure sutta that gets right to the heart of the, the practice itself. It gets to the heart of eye-making. It also gets to the heart of resistance to actually practicing the Dhamma, where some of the hindrances might come up. Um, and so all of that that occurs during meditation, and one of the reasons why it does occur during meditation is we're conditioned to believe that meditation itself will provide some um, magical or mystical um, answer to all of our questions or provide us a, a mental slash physical state that we can somehow reside in um, and even recognize as a uh, useful human experience meaning that we're treating our meditation practice as salvation or something that is uh, a means to an end other than deepening concentration. And so in this sutta, you'll see where the Buddha is teaching this key understanding that in meditation, as our distractions arise, as feelings and thoughts are distracting us, to recognize them as such and come back to the sensation of breathing. And also in this sutta, the Buddha begins with addressing this directly as pointing to the importance of understanding the four levels of jhana without treating them as um, as goals uh, or something to achieve. Excuse me. All right, let me get uh, get into the sutta. So again, just to make the fine point, this here the Buddha is talking about um, different types of practitioners. And so he's talking both about those that might come to the Dhamma out of curiosity and take it one or two steps and realize that it's not for them, and that's fine. The, the Buddha was clear that he wasn't a savior and he wasn't teaching a salvific religion, so it's up to individuals whether you want to practice this or not. And again, one of the things that he would emphasize, though, is the importance to experience it before you make those decisions. Ehepasiko, come and see for yourself, is something he, he asked uh, everybody that ever came to him. Check it out. See if it works for you. And then he describes these different types of Dhamma practitioners, again, not in a, um, a judgmental way, but in, as in everything that the Buddha taught, every word that came out of his mouth was simply to teach the Dhamma. The Buddha begins. Friends, there are four types of Dhamma practitioners. There is a type of... Uh, hold on one second. Yeah, got it. Make sure I was recording it. There is a type of Dhamma practitioner that enters and remains in mental absorption, meaning they're, they're practicing the jhana meditation correctly. And they experience a certain peaceful awareness release. They recognize the deepening concentration and the release from views ignorant of Four Noble Truths. They are mindful of the cessation of self-identification. 
So this is the beginning stage of jhana practice. We've, we've come to our jhana meditation, caught up in our day, distracted by the events. Maybe our minds are in the past or in the future. We begin practice. We focus on our, our breath and our body, and it unites our mind and our body. Um, there's a peaceful awareness that we've all experienced in that, even if it's just momentary. And in that moment, while we're experiencing that simple, peaceful awareness of being connected with our breath, there is a cessation of self-awareness. That's why it's a pleasant abiding, because we're not preoccupied with ourselves in that moment. The Buddha continues, but even as they are mindful of the cessation of self-identification, their mind is not enraptured with release, with cessation, meaning we still are harboring... um, qualities of mind conditioned thinking that is rooted in doubt and uncertainty um, really ultimately it's a lack of right effort you remember how we looked at the eightfold path as such they do not grow confident or steadfast or well established in the cessation of self-identification so again there's a lot in that one sentence i'm going to read it again they do not grow confident or steadfast or well established in the cessation of self-identification why not why didn't I just take a couple of breaths and I already I realized that this is the most perfect dominant it's all for me? Because we have something called conditioned thinking. And so a mind would tell us, wow, if this was something that was really good, I'd be happy right now. I'd be fulfilled. I'd be enraptured with what I'm studying. If that was the case, then the Dhamma would just be another distraction, wouldn't it? But jhana practice immediately gets us to focus on eye-making. So in this moment, as I'm doing the simple thing that any adult human being can do, being mindful of the breath and the body, I find resistance. And so it can come up in, in uh, jhana practice, but also as we're uh, in class, it can come up at, in resistance as well. Excuse me. All of that is a form of eye-making that the Buddha is addressing in this sutta. So... If you recognize in your jhana practice, and everyone, everyone does, doubt and uncertainty, and you're struggling with that doubt and uncertainty, meaning you're, you're examining it, you're analyzing it, you're judging it, you are applying it to yourself or you're taking it personally. What the Buddha is saying is everybody goes through it, be mindful of it, take a breath and continue your jhana practice because it's nothing extraordinary, but it will take us away from jhana practice. That's why the Buddha teaches it. That's why I'm teaching it. They do not grow confident or steadfast or well-established in the cessation of self-identification. We don't want to go forward. We're clinging to self-identification. For them, the final cessation of self-identification cannot be expected. If we continue to cling to self-referential views, we cannot be expected ourselves. We shouldn't expect it of ourselves to let go of those views. And how do we let go of the views? We simply recognize them as distraction and jhana meditation and come back to the sensation of breathing, therefore deepening our jhana meditation or our level of meditative absorption. Is that clear to everyone before I continue? Actually, the better question is, is it, if it's not clear, please you know, just open your mic and say it's not. Could you just say it again? I just need to hear it. Yeah, let me, let me say the sentence again. and then I'll, uh, They do not grow confident or steadfast or well-established in the cessation of self-identification. That is pointing to the whole point and purpose of jhana meditation and the Eightfold Path. So, again, what the Buddha is teaching here, and I hope to teach, is at some point, your Dhamma practice 
rooted in jhana will take the leap from doing this kind of out of a sense of duty or because that crazy old bald guy is telling me to do it or even out of um, a fabricated desire to recognizing, yes, this is something that will deliver what I expect. I, I experience it even at a slight level of deepening concentration and because I recognize it, an important point, that's the point of this sutta, because I'm able to recognize it, I now grow confident. And now our, and this is where the Buddha taught, teaches that we now gain the ability to become rightly self-awakened. I'm not relying on an achievement or outside verification of what I'm doing. It's through my own direct experience. Ehepasiko. Come and see for yourself. Does that help, Alex? Great. Then the Buddha continues, and he starts using what I think is just a a wonderful uh, metaphor. Just as if one were to grasp a branch with hands sticky with rosin, they would cling to the branch. In the same manner, one who remains in mental absorption and and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release, meaning letting go, a certain level of letting go of ignorant views, but continues to cling to wrong views. So think about the metaphor. I'm, I'm grasping after something with a sticky hand. That sticky hand is a metaphor for my own conditioned thinking. It's what I'm not willing to let go of. It's what I'm self-identifying with. They are not enraptured with release, with cessation. So they do not grow confident or steadfast or well-established in the cessation of self-identification. It's because of my own clinging and maintaining of wrong views that I'm not gaining a deeper level of mental absorption. It's not because of something lacking in the Dhamma. It's something that's lacking in my approach. Again, not to be judgmental about ourselves. We learn to treat ourselves gently, but to recognize it's us. This is the reason why I'm not developing the Dhamma. It's not because of that crazy bald-headed guy, and it's not because of the Dhamma itself. It's because of my own. And we could classify this as wrong effort, but not in a judgmental way, just to understand that as I continue to engage in the framework of the Eightfold Path and practice jhana as it's meant to be, my, pro- my progress is assured. And this is an important point because I think all of us had a meditation practice or probably tens of meditation practices that we brought to our jhana practice. And that's an aspect of our practice that this is pointing to as well because it's very difficult, excuse me, to let go of little nuances of other practices that we want to cling to and bring to our jhana practice, such as subtle levels of of visualization or even subtle ideas of what I should be looking for in my meditation rather than just this, deepening concentration. And whenever we do that, come up against um, other meditative practices that can seem like annihilation, and that's where great doubt and uncertainty can come into play too. Then there, the Buddha continues, then there is a type of Dhamma practitioner that enters and remains in mental absorption in jhana practice and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release. They experience it. We know we're having it. They are mindful. Again, an important aspect of the Buddhist type of mindfulness. They are mindful of the cessation of self-identification. I refer to that as refined mindfulness. As they are mindful of the cessation of self-identification, again, in this moment, 
during jhana practice, and of course then off our cushion as experiences arises, as they are mindful of the cessation of self-identification, their mind is enraptured with release. Again, I'm using a rather archaic word, rapture or enraptured, but it's a good word. And again, I'm not using it in terms of, uh, of um, the apocalypse coming. That's an, an, a very ancient archaic rap, uh, reference. Rapture also means joyful engagement with whatever. And in this case, it's joyful engagement with jhana practice. As they are mindful of the cessation of self-identification, their mind is enraptured with release. We are enraptured with this process. This is skillful desire. I found the benefit, or at least I recognize the benefit of this practice, this pure practice. And I am now enraptured with it because I recognize the benefits. That's what we're talking about here. And in order to get to this point, we actually have to be practicing a pure Dhamma. Their mind is enraptured with release, with cessation. This is a quality of mind that we're talking about. As such, they do grow confident and steadfast and well-established in this ongoing process, well-established in the cessation of self-identification. For them, the final cessation of self-identification is to be expected, meaning it is that skillful desire that once generated and maintained will carry us through. Now, of course, with everyone I've ever taught in my own experience, that and that enraptured nature, that joyful engagement with the Dhamma, will fade. And sometimes it will fade in the next thought. And what are we learning here in that sutta? To recognize that my own enrapturement, if I can use the word, with my Dhamma practice has faded. What do I do? I look forward to my next meditation practice session to reinvigorate it. And in this moment, I take a breath and I unite my mind and my body. And I'm bringing myself back onto my cushion while I'm walking in the world. And the Buddha uses another beautiful metaphor. Just as if one, one were to grab a branch with clean hands now, pure Dhamma, they would not cling to the branch or cling to fabricated views. They would recognize them and abandon them. In the same manner, one who engages fully with the Eightfold Path remains in mental absorption and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release. They continue to diminish wrong views and their mind is enraptured with release, with cessation. So how do we keep going with, with jhana practice, or with, with dhamma practice? When we're off our cushion, we recognize that we need to continue to develop and integrate the Eightfold Path in this moment. Not for the future, not so I get a future reward, in this moment off the cushion, I realize I'm distracted or distressed. I'm in discontent. I realize that there is some form of wrong view that is taking place in my mind in this moment. What do I do? I take a breath. I unite my mind and my body. And I now am engaging in right view because of the framework of the Eightfold Path. On our cushion, we recognize it simply as distraction, as I'm caught up in a feeling or a thought. And I return my mind to be mindful of the breath excuse me, the breath in the body. And in that way, during jhana meditation, I'm reincorporating right meditation or reincorporating the Eightfold Path. <coughs> because it is in meditation 
that when we are practicing jhana meditation, not some other form, that we are directly integrating and engaging with the Eightfold Path. That's why I keep emphasizing, that's what this 28-class structure study of jhana meditation is all about, to understand the profound importance of this single meditation practice as the jhana, as the Buddha's meditation. They continue to diminish wrong views and their mind is enraptured with release with cessation. They do grow confident and steadfast and well-established in the cessation of self-identification. For them, the final cessation of self-identification can be expected. So if you don't find yourself growing confident with your jhana practice and your overall integration of the Eightfold Path, talk to your teacher. Bring it to class. Look at where your right effort might be lacking. Look at where the hindrances, and the hindrances are coming up, by the way. Look at where the hindrances have taken hold of your practice in the moment and are dissuading you from continued Dhamma practice. Because I can tell you from my own experience and now teaching for 10 or 12 years, that it is not Dhamma practice that doesn't work. It's our own conditioning against Dhamma practice working that takes us out of Dhamma practice. And again, that's not a judgment. It's not right or wrong whether we continue with jhana practice or, or choose not to. Each and every human being has, and this is the most profound choice any human being can ever make, whether we recognize it or not, has the profound choice to continue ignorance of Four Noble Truths, not a crime, or continue to develop awakening and develop understanding of Four Noble Truths. To me, the greatest reward of having a human life. But it's up to us as individuals. And so if we find ourselves listening to this guy, listening to someone teaching us this ancient Dhamma, and in this moment I find, I don't like it. I don't want to continue. It doesn't seem to fit in my lifestyle. Go ahead, leave. Enjoy your life as best as you can within the frame of reference that you've developed. And if you find that that frame of reference leaves you in, at times in discontent and confusion, then recognize that here is a practice that teaches you how to end that. And that's, what, that's its purpose. To not deliver some kind of magical, mystical, or speculative experience. To not take us out of our body, out of what's occurring, but to put us in our mind, in our body, our mind connected with our body in this life experience. So on our cushion, I recognize this is the most profound moment in my life. And if, if, if resistance is occurring, if doubt is occurring in this moment, it's not because of something lacking in the Dhamma, it's something that's lacking in me as a wise Dhamma practitioner. So, then the Buddha continues. Then there is this, the type of Dhamma practitioner that enters and remains in mental absorption and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release, someone who is actually practicing a Dhamma as intended. And they are mindful of, of the breaching of ignorance of Four Noble Truths, but their minds are not enraptured with release, with cessation. What happens? They do not grow confident or steadfast or well-established in the cessation of self-reference, namarupa. Why is the Buddha teaching this? Of course, he's not teaching us to be judgmental of our practice from 2,600 years ago, and I'm not teaching it so you can feel the weight of my thumb on your, on your jhana practice. I hope you don't. Just to point out that if you're not growing confident in your jhana practice as a means of 
one factor of the Eightfold Path, to recognize it. That's all, to recognize it. Why? Because for them, the final cessation of self-identification cannot be expected. So in this moment, in my Dharma practice, in my larger Dharma practice, I notice in my jhana meditation, I'm simply not confident in this. A lot of doubt is coming up in my jhana practice. Because of the recognition of that doubt, in that moment, I should not expect final release. But what should I, what should I incorporate into that? What, what quality of mind? Another beautiful metaphor. Just as if there were a long-standing wastewater pool, a septic tank, if you will, a cistern. And during the dry season, a man blocks all the inlets, everything coming in to the cistern, and opens all the outlets. With inlets, inlets blocked and no rain falling, the breaching of the wastewater pool would not be expected. Nothing would be coming in. I have my resistance. In the same manner, a Dharma practitioner enters or remains in mental absorption and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release. In that moment, with the inlets blocked, this is, this is practicing wise restraint in this moment. We talk about that a lot. They are attending to the breaching of ignorance, but they do not grow confident or steadfast or well-established in the breaching of ignorance. For them, the breaching of ignorance cannot be expected. What, the, what this metaphor is teaching is I've blocked the world out because I think that is the problem, that the world is the problem. But when we do that, we're also not allowing life to flow through us and so having the opportunity to recognize where our ignorance is arising. Then, then there is a type of Dharma practitioner that enters or remains in mental absorption and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release. They are, these ones, are mindful of the breaching of ignorance. Their minds are enraptured with release from that ignorance. We're happy, we're content that we're finally addressing the problem of our own discontent when we recognize that. They are enraptured with release from ignorance. This also refers to those things that in the past may have blocked us from developing the Dhamma. We are now enraptured. We take joyful engagement with the release of those views. They do grow grow confident and steadfast and well-established in the breaching of ignorance. For them, the final cessation of self-identification can be expected. So we are now engaging in dana practice in an overarching right view. We recognize that this practice is coming up against our own ignorance, its manifestations as a mental fabrication, as a mental construct, manifesting as doubt or uncertainty, and the other aspects of uh, jhana practice, such as uh, tiredness. A lot of people experience that, um, especially late in the day. I'm too tired to practice or I'm too tired to come to a class. That's resistance to Dhamma practice almost entirely. I mean, sometimes it's just physical exhaustion. But often, Dhamma practice, or resistance to Dhamma practice will manifest in some of these different ways, identified as the hindrances. And it's, again, I'm teaching it, the Buddha teaches it to be recognized, to recognize it so that it doesn't stop our jhana practice, our Dhamma practice. It is just as if there were a long-standing wastewater pool during the rainy season 
and a man, a person opens up all inlets and blocks all outlets. Excuse me. With inlets open, inlets open, I'm wide open, outlets closed, and rain falling, the breaching of the wastewater pool can be expected. In the same manner, a Dharma practitioner enters and remains in mental absorption and experiences a certain peaceful awareness release. We're aware of it. They are mindful of the breaching of ignorance. That the, the, all the inlets open, all the outlets open is metaphor for the radical acceptance but clean focus of an eightfold path of a wise Dharma practitioner. They are mindful of the breaching of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Their minds are enraptured with that release. We are taking joyful engagement in our Dhamma practice in this moment. And that is a, that, it, that if we're not, it doesn't mean that we're, uh, we're practicing Dhamma incorrectly. It just means we need more practice as the Sutta is teaching. Their minds are enraptured with release from ignorance. Again, the whole point of the Dhamma is pointed out right here. They do grow confident and steadfast and well-established in the breaching of ignorance. One of the reasons why I, I started teaching the sutta is because of that one line. Because I realized that that was a turning point in my own Dhamma practice. That was a turning point of me dragging with me all the conditioning of my entire life and all of the years that I spent in modern Buddhism. And finally understanding why was I so resistant to this, this simple Four Noble Truths practice. It, it was because up until that moment, excuse me, Up until that moment, I was no longer confident, or I was not yet confident in what I was doing. But that confidence manifested in me when I finally understood that everything the Buddha taught was described in the Paticca Samuppada, in dependent origination, from ignorance of Four Noble Truths comes all manner of stress and suffering, as described as Four Noble Truths. And that changed everything for me. At that point, there was just, just a, a measure of confidence that I was doing the right thing. And that formed the foundation of everything that followed. It's the reason why I'm here today. It's the reason why I'm taking such great meaning in the Buddha's Dhamma. I'm going to read it again. They do grow confident and steadfast and well-established in the breaching of ignorance. That's what occurred to me. During... During a phase of Dhamma practice that, was, that could be characterized as full of doubt and uncertainty, but was now becoming framed by the Eightfold Path through my direct study of the suttas, just as you're doing here. We are not doing anything different than I did or that the Buddha actually did and taught during his lifetime. This is it. For them, the final cessation of self-identification can be expected. And again, one more time. We do grow confident and steadfast and well-established in the breaching of, of ignorance. For us, the final cessation of self-identification can be expected. Then the Buddha concludes this. These are the four types of Dharma practitioners in the world. That's the end of the sutta. So it does ask the uh, profound and direct question, what type of Dharma practitioners are we going to be and are we in this present moment? And again, the Buddha doesn't add more to this and to, to admonish us to say, if you decide 
you're not someone who wants to do this or, or someone who can grow confident in their jhana practice. You're a bad person or you're immoral, immoral or you're stupid or you're not associated. He leaves everyone in peace. Why? Because his mind is at peace. And this is a dhamma that allows us to leave our mind at peace when other people, again, this is, I'm, I'm going a little bit beyond this sutta, but the question can arise, how come everybody else isn't doing this and why aren't my friends doing this? Because they have not yet grown confident in understanding Four Noble Truths. We have. It's our practice. It's an individual um, practice of becoming rightly self-awakened. It's not a practice of other self-awakening. It's up to us to do this. And, it, and it's up to us to attend to our own confidence level. And how do we do that? How do we attend to deepening our confidence as the Buddha teaches here that is so important. We must keep our Dhamma practice pure. If we're not willing to do that, we're not willing to practice the Dhamma. Again, that's fine. But this is a, this is a sutta on, we, we, could, we could add the, the ninth factor of the Eightfold Path of right focus, but that's really right view and right effort. So that's today's sutta. Let's go around uh, and I'd like to hear what, uh, what you have to say. I'm going to start with Louise. Louise, how are you? All right, Louise, let me get, would you be more comf- comfortable, and it's okay if you don't say anything, if I called on you later after you heard some of the discussion? Yeah. I will then. I'll come, I'll get you, I'll get you at, at, later on. Either way, Part- whatever you feel. Well, I guess since I asked the question, I, I'm going to, I'm going to make you wait. Okay. <laughs> Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Good afternoon, Jeff. Good. Um, yeah, so, you know, I've reestablished a little bit of equilibrium in my own practice again after my little health issue. And uh, the, the insight I've gained, you know, I had, I was having, attributing my difficulties concentrating to physical pain. And now the pain has pretty much all gone away. And I'm beginning to realize it's not that the pain is not so much a distraction as my concept of loss of control. Yes. Right. Yep. In other words, yep. physically things are going on that that I can't pretend to control. And I realize that that was always part of the identity that I I, I associated with was I was strong and good health and in control. And uh, so that that's kind of an insight that's been helping me a lot yeah. the past few days. Yeah. Um, thank, thank you, Jeff. I, again, you point out something that's so important and it relates to the sutta. Uh, it, even in the, you remember when the, the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha teaches, there's different forms of pain. There's a pain of the body, a pain of the mind. And the, that the pain of the body can often take, often take us out of concentration, especially on our cushion. And uh, uh, the difficulty you were having for a couple of weeks, uh, I'm gonna, uh, I don't think you mind, post-surgery, um, is entirely appropriate for Donna, for jhana practice. It, it's expected to, be, to happen, and you did exactly what the teachings tell us to do. You just keep going. And recognizing in this moment I have a lot of physical pain, 
I'm not going to let it stop me from jhana practice, even though in the moment it's taking you from being mindful of your breath. That's jhana practice. You know, and, it, and, it, and it's such an important teaching on being gentle with ourselves, too. This is how I am right now. Uh, there's sometimes, I, I, have, I deal with a lot of chronic pain. And even though I'm the world's greatest meditator, there's times when the pain is just too great and I can't sit. And I, I, I do something else, and I'll come back to it later on. I mean, I, and I do that consistently because my, the pain that I feel is also impermanent too. So it allows me to bring uh, that understanding into jhana practice. Right here when the pain in my hip is just too severe, okay, I can't practice. I go yeah, do something yeah. else. Yeah, right? so the, the, the pain didn't seem impermanent enough there for a short while. But it, what I did was I, I, I couldn't sit on the cushion either. Yeah. And uh, so what I started to do was... Uh, just five minute meditation at a time. Just yeah, a minute or two, and I just did it as frequently as I could. It came to mind. Uh, and, thank uh, you, Jeff. And that kept your practice alive, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. That, that, that kept me alive. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That it's such an example of um, recognizing how how we directly engage with the Dhamma. So. I, 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 this is such a good example because I've had people tell me that they couldn't meditate at all because of too much physical pain, something that is occurring immediately. And the only thing I can say is you do the best you can, like I just said to Jeff, but Jeff was able to do it on his own. He understood to just do the best he can within his Dhamma practice. When we're feeling great and we have no pain and our minds are calm and at peace, we remind ourselves in that state, okay, just do the best we can because in that state we can say, well, I don't need I don't need this practice. I'm feeling great. I'm thinking great. There's nothing wrong in my life. Why should I practice? That's just as much of distraction as intense pain. So it's important to recognize. And again, the Buddha teaches that in the sutta. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Hello, Ed. Good to see you. Ed, you're on, you're on mute, Ed. You're muted. Ed, can you un uh, can you unmute your microphone? Sorry. Yeah, you are. Uh, gee, I said some wonderful things there. Who did? <laughs> um, I I think when you were were talking about um, the aspects of former meditation practices that we bring to jhana, um, one of the things that I know it's true of me, and I imagine it's probably true of a lot of people, is the Western understanding of meditation is a rather passive one. Yeah. We sort of lay back and we think that if we can calm ourselves down enough that some external agent is going to come along and yeah. pour some kind of wisdom into our minds. Yeah. And so a lot of our meditation practice, even when we come to the Dhamma, is focused in that way okay i'll sit here i'll be quiet and then the great uga guga will open up all the mysteries of the universe yeah, to me. yeah. Uh, bit of an exaggeration but you know it's it's that sort of thinking yeah know? and the thing that's occurring to me more and more is that in the suttas we don't get the prescription for passive meditation that the path is a series of, of what, what you would call skillful fabrications yeah designed to replace the unskillful ones. Um, 
I, I don't know if I'm on the right track with this, but in the uh, in the Satipatthana, in the second uh, series of meditations, you're supposed to be sensitive to rapture and then sensitive to pleasure. Um, I don't think you can just sit back and say, okay, come on, rapture. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think you have to do a certain amount of perceptual work to engender that sense of rapture within yourself. Yeah, let me let me just get to the point. I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's so important. In the sutta, it teaches us to be sensitive to something, not not and you're talking about it, not manufactured or generated. Sensitive means to be use your senses to recognize what's occurring. So again, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's such an important point. No, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I'm I'm always sort of on the fence here. You know how much. How much am I supposed to use my imagination in this process? None. And how much am I supposed to simply observe what's happening? And um, sometimes I do the one, sometimes I do the other. Um, I'm not really, I, I don't know that I've found the proper balance there. But uh, if there if there's rapture in you, you could be sensitive to it. That's fine, you know. If you have to give a little boost, it seems to me that's probably okay, too. Uh, yeah, it, it's okay depending on the view, I think. If, if the boost is coming, as the Buddha teaches in the sutta and other suttas, from your own practice, that's fine. But it's a, if it's a boost, and this can be very subtle, rooted in the belief in salvation or that I need salvation or I'm going to get something special out of this, then you're, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. But if you continue with practice, even that will be overcome. So you're also talking about the... Um, uh, there's a one of the major forms of modern Buddhism. Uh, one of their tenets in most of their different lineages is this idea of of uh, instantaneous instantaneous awakening. Meaning that if you meditate long enough, hard enough, you'll have this burst of insight, and you'll be awakened. And some schools even take that further. That when that burst of insight happens, poof, you just vanish from the physical plane. Of course, the Buddha didn't teach any. Maybe that's possible. and Maybe it's something somebody wants to pursue. I don't. And it's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught what it means to be a human being. So anything that would take us out of that experience is something that is fabricated. And the only um, minor thing I would say about, what, what you, about skillful fabrications, you can apply that term, but it's, it's better to recognize that what is skillful is what is directly experienced as Dhamma. And, and again, this sutta points to that, how to see that, how to recognize that it's developing in our practice. So, thank you, Ed. Alex, good evening. Hi, John. Um, Ed, I think there's some feedback on your video. Some feedback on what? From your, from your microphone. Could you mute your mic? Oh, yeah, sure. Thank you. Thanks. Um, yeah, so... <clears throat> what did I notice? First of all, I've, I have COVID, so I'm a bit foggy. But um wanted to, to come because, as we've discussed before, I think it's good to, to keep trying to learn. Um, so I'm trying to just go gent gently with myself. I think... I noticed that the um, the eye definitely gripped on the stick, the, the the part in the sutra about the stick. 
I know I notice times when I'm gripping um, to the stick of wrong views. I think I do it a lot. Um, and I think this change can be really hard or scary at times because yep. we just, we cling to what we know. Or I, sorry, I cling to what I know. And, yep. and then when I question why, you know, I don't, I don't know because these, it, it doesn't feed my existence in this moment. Um, so yeah, that, that jumped out at me. I, I, I was kind of thinking, reflecting on that. Um, and I was also thinking about my confidence level on my, with my practice. And um, I think it go, comes and goes a lot. And I think yeah. I often lose confidence in the, in the practice. I think I grip to the end goal. Like what confuses me, and I made a note of this, is still this concept of being awakened. And I think that that's not only confusing me, but it's also affecting my practice because I'm still clinging to the outcome. Um, and yeah, I find that difficult. And But I'd rather practice than not practice. I'd rather keep going uh, or yeah, keep practicing because that's all I can do in this moment. Um, so yeah, this 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 suitor brought up a lot for me, and um, I don't know if it's the COVID or just the way I am at the moment. But I, I'm, I'm there's a lot that I'm struggling to process. But there's stuff there's stuff happening. There's stuff happening. Yeah, I th- thank you, Alex. There is there's a lot in every suitor. Uh, even when I go through the Dhammapada, it, which is sometimes it's just a short poem, there's so much in here because we're getting to the heart of humanity. So the heart of what it means to be a human being. Um, but the practice, everything that, was, that I talked about here is easily understood and implemented except of our own conditioned thinking. And you described it again. These, these, the resistance that comes up during your jhana practice, the, the doubt and uncertainty is just that. And the resolution is in the next breath. And you're, again, you're doing that. You have doubt and uncertainty. We've, we've even talked about this in the past. And you continue with your Dhamma practice. And that, um, in that moment, doubt and uncertainty is not keeping you from practice. And you're diminishing its effect in that moment. You're diminishing the power behind it. It's on, the momentum that you're maintaining from your views. Every time you diminish the view a little bit, it diminishes the power behind the view. And the goal is something that is common um, for almost every meditator I've ever come across, especially those that had some other practice. Because we're taught that there's a goal to meditation. We're meditating for a purpose other than concentration. And it's a recognition of that that can be, it's the maintenance of that view that is the ultimate distraction, isn't it? That's why the Buddha taught very early the purpose of meditation is to deepen concentration to develop the quality of mind of calm. And so it's important to remind yourself when you're distracted in your meditation and grasping after where am I going with this, to remind yourself, wait a minute, I'm going after calm. Not speculation, not where I might be, not how do I save myself, how do I better myself, what would improve this moment in my life, wait a minute, am I calm or not? If I'm not, what do I need to do? Well, what I got to do if I'm not calm is I have to, I have to, have to um, go over my entire Dhamma practice, find out where I'm doing it wrong, or find out where it doesn't. No, when you find that you're distracted in this moment, when you're caught up in discontent, 
And that might seem too simplistic, but what we're doing in that moment is interrupting conditioned thinking, interrupting a view that would, that would massage the doubt and uncertainty rather than recognize it, that would find some value in, in, in analyzing the doubt and uncertainty. I mean, and that's reinforced in our Dhamma practice. It's, it's reinforced in a general way in our approach to psychology and psychiatry, the medical um, application of discontent, if you will. And again, I'm not putting those practices down. They save many people's lives. This is different. We don't, we don't massage the cause of our discontent in this practice. We recognize it and abandon it. I, I'm sorry, Alex, you were going to say something else. No, when you talk about tiredness as resistance, um, is it fair to say that, you know, when we're tired, we, we don't want to come to class? But if, is it fair to say that if we do come to class, it's still fair to say that it's, it's going to be more difficult? Yes. It's, and meditation and the practice itself... Like right now, I'm finding it more difficult because I'm unwell. Just like yeah, um, just like Jeff. Yep. We spoke about this before, yeah, and the same with Jeff. Um, but again, yeah. So that's why I need I need to go gently with myself and just accept. But keep going is the main thing. Keep going. Yes, um, you said the key words. Be gentle with yourself, but maintain the framework of the eightfold path, because it is the framework of the eightfold path that keeps us going. And again, there's nothing, you know, nothing really magical about that either, except that we have to do it ourselves. It is very easy when we're not feeling well or we're judging ourselves or the Dhamma harshly to just say to hell with it. You know, I'm not going to do it. And again, that's fine. But that was your, it was your thinking process that took you out of the Dhamma. It wasn't a failure of the Dhamma. I think it's only difficult because of our expectations of it, right? Yes. That we want it to be more than it is. Yeah. But again, that's a part of conditioned thinking. Ed was talking about bringing in different practices inadvertently to our Dhamma practice, to our jhana practice. And for years, maybe even 10 years after I was practicing just jhana, I would find myself in a session, a jhana session, where my, my TM, Transcendental Meditation Mantra, had popped into my mind and I was focused on that. And that was just an example of how conditioned my mind was to grasp after that. So I'd find myself in a wonderful jhana session, enraptured with my uh, confidence, and all of a sudden... Uh-oh, there I am in TM. What do I do about it? Well, I got up off my cushion. I went and I beat the hell out of my TM teacher. No, I simply recognize it as my own fabrication, my own conditioned thinking, and came back to the sensation of breathing. And just so you know, I haven't that, that mantra hasn't come up in 25 years or so. But it is, it's an aspect of our practice, and it's there to be recognized and it's simply abandoned. Uh, Alex uh, really expresses that notion of being gentle with ourselves when our... Uh, self-referential views come up, but, but we all do. You know, this is part of uh, developing genre practice. So, thank you, Alex. Thank you, Matteo. How are you today? All good. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, I like I like what Alex said and um, about to keep going because I remember many many years ago when I started the meditation. It was like sometimes you find you know you find excuse or you meditate yeah. badly, and then. And then a result of, I think, uh, the best is don't look for anything. Just keep meditating and, yeah, easy to say, but you say don't grasp negative thought, but not even the positive thought. Um, most of the time I'm worried about the positive thoughts because negative are negative. Everybody wants to pre- pretend to not see the negativity of yes. life or doesn't work, but that positivity we just grasp and say, oh, I have a wonderful meditation, but even that one, it, it make me some concern. 
So because it's like I, I I'm not looking for that, and uh, of course if I arrive, accept it. But uh, uh, my my idea when I do my my jhana meditation is try to be to be equal with these two kind of feelings and thoughts. Yes. So I, um, and if you know sometimes like some friend like a ex ex friend in like a, in other sanghas they ask me oh why are you meditating Matteo what's the what's the point like you're just looking for concentration and let's see you don't looking for you know any reward other stuff is like I think for me it's like is almost like eating meditation so it's something that I do every day I don't need to eat every day like three courses I just need like some simple food that keep me alive and uh, for my body for my and that's uh, my meditation I can do four hour meditation that's great, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry Mateo, I didn't mean to interrupt you I was just it, that, it was such a, a, a wonderful way of looking at it you know we don't have our, our jhana practice does not need to be um, a banquet table of different practices that we choose from it's just this one little simple little bowl that we that we eat on a daily basis, and then that brings us to, to understanding. So, what a great way of putting it! And again, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Fine, I was over. Finish. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, it, it is. It is just this. We we become a, a human's mind conditioned by ignorance is always grasping. That's the second noble truth: is that craving for and clinging to views ignorant of four noble truths is the problem. So again, wise restraint, as Matteo just described, on our cushion and off our cushion is the key to understanding. The secret to life is not to have more and more and more. The eightfold path is a limiting path. It limits our grasping after and clinging to fabricated views and fabricated objects, events, and views and ideas. And in that way, in that way of ending grasping after, it brings a calm and peaceful mind of radical acceptance of what's occurring and what I have in this moment. Most importantly, what I have as a quality of mind, not what I have in my wallet or in my refrigerator. What is the present quality of my mind? That's jhana practice. And that if that quality of mind is rooted in calm, profound calm that a Buddha teaches, now I have everything that human life can offer. Because if I don't have that, I could have the biggest hut with the most coconuts and I'm going to be miserable because I don't understand what it means. Or I could uh, the other way. I could have just a few coconuts, but enough to get by on. I think I don't have enough because that guy down, you know, in the next hut over has all all these coconuts. Again, self-referential views. I'm using something simple to describe what Matteo's talking about. And in meditation, we can decide that I need to have the biggest hut with the biggest coconuts, or I can, as Matteo just described, I can tell myself the hut doesn't matter. The quality of mind matters. Thank you, Matteo. Tom, how are you? I'm good, thanks, John. I like your um, huts and coconuts analogy. It always <laughs> makes me smile. Um, so, uh, yeah, so um, a bit like what Alex said, you know, I, I have, um, what was it, hands with sticky with resin or whatever um, yeah. uh, it said. Uh, and it's it's interesting. I almost I almost feel I don't know if this is possible to be. I'm I am very or in, let's say increasingly confident and steadfast in the Dharma. And as I was mentioning to you earlier, I've had in some ways a difficult week, particularly with um, 
my my sleep patterns and stuff like that. I have these unusual sleep patterns in it. And um, I always used to think that, uh, you know, following like jhana practice or, or in fact any kind of meditation would solve all my problems. And yeah. so when things like this happen, when I have a bit of insomnia, which I've had quite a lot recently, I get quite, I, uh, there's a tendency to get frustrated with myself because I think, how is this is not fair? Like I'm putting all this work in, I'm doing jhana practice, etc., etc., and I'm not getting the reward that that I should be, right? It, it, this shouldn't be happening to me. Um, but, but anyway, so, but as I grow more and more into the practice, I, you know, it's, it is really sort of letting go of that, that need for external circumstances or what happens in your life or things that are out of your control, you know, letting go, as Jeff was saying, of that, that ability, which we don't have anyway to control, to control them. If I sleep or I don't sleep, it's actually not something, I mean, there are, obviously things you can do to to um help but at the end of the day you can't you can't control certain things about your body um um, or about life in general so um so i've 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 found that especially this well recently but increasingly over the last i guess weeks and months um i am more and more steadfast in my practice and confident in my practice because i do see it as 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 the solution the only real solution um but i still have and i don't know if it's possible to also have those sticky hands at the same time yeah because i still get distracted and i it, it comes in and it confuses me sometimes and i'm suddenly like you know chasing something else but then i do come back eventually i come back to to the practice um so so yeah so that, that was just i guess what the what the teachings meant to me um today I, I just had a question though because i understand there were four types of of um dharma practitioner and i kind of understand the big difference right between the one that is enraptured with the cessation of essentially clinging and self-identification and all of those things and then there's the type which is not enraptured by that as in that is not enough they're, they want something else um, yeah. and they're distracted of the teachings or whatever i understand that distinction but there's four types and it, i got a bit confused if i'm honest when we're talking about the um one type is about noble truths like uh, under ignorance of noble truths and then the first type is it is something slightly different and I, I don't have it in front of me right now are you able to the first type and the third type can you just clarify what the difference is between those those two types of um of genre uh, of, of dharma practitioner yes thank you for the question it's important but it really comes down to the to the um the underlying quality of my mind and and you really could say that this whole sutta even though it covers a lot really points to the importance of, of just joyful engagement with the Dhamma. You know, and this goes back to, to uh, taking refuge. We understand, uh, and again, not the way it's usually portrayed, we take refuge in the triple refuge of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So we take refuge. We understand that a human being actually did this. So that starts building some joyful engagement. Yeah, somebody else just like me did this. 
rather than a god or a supreme being, how, how Siddhartha is often portrayed. And we understand that even though it's, it's become adapted, accommodated, and grossly embellished, the Dhamma, his teachings are still here. I can take joyful engagement in that because I've experienced it. And I also have present a well-informed and well-focused Sangha right here, right now. I can take joyful engagement in that. I can. I have confidence in it. How does it happen? How does it continue in our practice? Just as you described, Tom, sometimes I am confident in my practice and sometimes I'm not. What do I do? I continue with my practice just as you described. And just as we're talking. So, Jhana or Dhamma practice is no different than human life. It's affected by impermanence. Sometimes it feels wonderful. Sometimes pain, physical pain, might take us out of it. Sometimes it's just a little bit of confusion. But if we keep coming back to practice and keep maintaining that joyful engagement rooted in our own understanding, that becomes the, the path to continue to be self, uh, rightly self-awakened our own inner wherewithal. Does that answer your question, Tom? The difference between one practitioner and another? So you can be engaged in the, in the intellectual pursuit. I'm sorry? The, um, no, it's, it's, it's interesting and it's helpful, but I guess it was just, the first type is clinging to the branch with sticky hands. <laughs> so that's all about clinging. Clinging to wrong views. Is the 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 pool of a, the the what do we call it? Not the swamp, the um the water. Uh, sorry, the wastewater pool. In front of me, right? Yeah, the septic tank. And I, just to understand the difference in those two metaphors, right? Because they clearly it's four types. So obviously, clearly one is different to the other. And just just to understand what that difference is, one is clinging, and the other one is. Is that? Well, if we, one of it relates to just the initial practice, which can often seem, or often is, strictly intellectual. And so the metaphor could be that we're, we're clinging to our intellect to understand this, where the, the, the gradual letting go is now trusting the experiential process. But also be careful about um, embellishing the metaphor. So we can expect too much. Metaphor is just a teaching tool. And so we can expect too much out of the metaphor to describe uh, or to define what the actual practice is. So again, the quality of our mind in the way that we enter into jhana practice is important to recognize and also recognize that over time, our joyful engagement will develop if we're practicing correctly. And if it's not, to recognize that. So the metaphor initially could be clinging to my wrong views. Now I've let, you, view, let go to some extent, of my wrong views and the experience of that, and to recognize a deepening level of commitment to the jhana or a commitment to the dhamma, if you will. So, th- does that help, Tom? It, it, yeah, it does. I mean, I, 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 I know, I get it. I know. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. It's, um, it's maybe it's just. I think it's that it's that wastewater pool metaphor, which just slightly through me um but i yeah more or less i get it yeah well the wastewater pool i think is a is a again i'm using words that i translated from the poly uh i i, I could have said just a, a typical septic tank or a cistern where we flush our waste into but it's just to describe the 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 
you know, the utter waste of fabricated views, of views ignorant of Four Noble Truths. It's like sloughing through a wastewater pool through our life. There's always, always stuff will arise unless we get ourselves out of that pool. And again, it's a, in the pool, the wastewater pool is just a, uh, a metaphor, a euphemism for the quality of a mind rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. You know, it's prone to corruption. Okay. So, thank you, Tom. I see, I see, I get it now. Yeah, great question. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Good morning. Uh, good afternoon, Louise. I'm, I forgot where you are. Good afternoon, Louise, or evening. Hi, thank you. Good afternoon, oh. evening. <laughs> um, my thoughts are, are quite messy, which I know is probably expected from me because I kind of come into this a little bit more naive than the rest of you are here. I'm not as um, experienced with this, so my thoughts are a bit messy. Um, the thoughts that I have is that the reason that I am attracted to this practice is because my heart is attracted to this practice. My heart wants simplification. My heart wants something that is um, embodied. Um, my pattern has been a very intellectual pattern of evaluation, analysis, intellectual understanding, right or wrong, um, me, me or them. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been in this, a lot of pain and suffering in the past and tend to find sometimes I can slip back into it because my mind wants to be uh, making evaluations, understanding. Yep. And so I kind of often find that when I'm introduced to new practices, there's a part of me, my heart, that's like, oh, breath. Like, that's like taking a big, deep breath. That's, um, that's just what my heart wants. And then my mind says, yeah, but, yeah, but how does that work? at this level and yeah but how does that work here and how does that work over there and this is what I know and um and I think that when I'm in a focused practice like this which is you know we sit down for 20 minutes we know that we're coming into it we're in this like um jhana meditation I actually have a really kind practice with myself but I I'm aware you know I think a couple of weeks ago I said I fell asleep <laughs> um so I'm aware when I am slipping away I'm aware of when I'm pulling myself back I'm aware of where I'm distracted where I am that's perfect I where I'm resisting and that's all okay um but I'm okay with that because I know I pull myself back and that that's me deepening my awareness, that's me deepening my concentration, that is the practice. Where I struggle is when I'm out of this focused practice and I'm in the everyday world and I'm sitting with principles of, um, you know, no clinging, no attachment, um, be present, not be in the future or be in the past. And... Um, this idea of, you know, sort of watch thoughts and watch feelings, we don't cling to them. 
and then I have so many questions, <laughs> like so many questions um, in the everyday. So as an example, today I've just been for acupuncture, I've just been through a, a week's worth of really excruciating pain, um, like Jeff was mentioning, and um, and I went for acupuncture and I have a lot of um, stuck energy in my body which can translate to stuck emotion, um, holding things very tightly in my body. And the intellect part of me, the yeah but is if I, I am feeling something, I'm feeling a thought and then I'm just sort of breathing it out rather than actually taking the thought as a red flag and doing something about it, then I'm creating this stuck pain and then it builds up and I'm paralyzed. Like I can't even lift my head off the pillow. Like my, my neck is all paralyzed in one side. And so my intellect is like, well, what about the red, the important red flags in life and the important um, green flags in life? Can we still pick those up? if we're not attaching. Wait, will you say that again, Louise, please? I'm sorry. Yeah, so what about the important, like, red flags and green flags, and can we still pick those up if we're not attaching to anything? That's, I think, probably my biggest question, and it's more about the everyday than it is sitting down, focused jhana practice. It's more about the principles in the everyday landscape of how we are in relationship with our thoughts and our feelings. Okay, I get it. I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but you, you said so much and you're pointing to... Yeah, that's uh, it. That's all I wanted to say. No, you're, you're pointing to um, a, a, a deep understanding of the Dhamma and you're struggling with how to take your intellectual understanding and apply it in an experiential and practical way. So to answer your last question first, how do I do it when I'm caught up in life, if I can paraphrase your question, is you do it by attending to jhana practice on your cushion and then integrating the broader eightfold path in that moment of application. So you're not doing anything wrong, but the fact that you don't have instantaneous results, and I'm not saying you're looking for that, but the fact that it's not there, does it mean that it's not working? And let me go back to how you started this. Uh, and, and this is not, um, I'm not, I'm not judging the words that you use, but I'm using your words to point something out. Uh, you talked about how the Dhamma feels right in your heart, but when you start thinking about it, it doesn't, not so much at times. It seems confusing. What you refer to as the heart is really a, um, is a process of thinking, a heart, our heart, our physical heart or even our metaphorical heart has no ability to think or cognize on its own. What we attribute to what feels right is an aspect of our thinking, isn't it? And I'm going to ask you, to put you on the spot, Louise. Do you agree with that, what I just said? I'm still getting my head around it. Okay, let me, I'll, say, I'll say it again, maybe slower. I don't know if I agree or disagree. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for something else to understand it a little bit more. Okay, so um, the, the Dharma... Just as the Dhamma unites, jhana meditation unites our mind and our body, it also unites our intellect with our practical experience through that process. In other words, for us to accurately understand 
what's occurring in my life right here and right now without any conflict or discontent, I have to understand what I am in relation to that life. And that's what the Dhamma teaches us. So, and I know this is very confusing to you and all of us at first. What it comes down to is in this moment wanting myself or what's occurring to be different than it is. And in your case, when you, can't, when you feel like you can't marry your heart and your mind, when that's where you're identifying the conflict, is to recognize it as conflict, not as a, uh, an example of something that is not worthwhile anymore. Excuse me. In other words, it is in the conflict that you're identifying that the truth resides. But again, how do I marry the intellectual with the, with the heartfelt? Jhana meditation in the framework of the Eightfold Path is the way to do it. Now, I'm going to ask all of you, and I might even, let me, let me just go off screen for a second. I want to check something on the website if I can. I'm just looking at our um, schedule, what's coming up next week, and I should know it, but I don't. Where am I? I can't find it. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Um, let me get back so I can see you. I'm going to ask you all, uh, to, when you get off, especially you, Louise, um, to go on the website when you can and click right on the home pages, the Bahia Sutta. Um, just please read that because it reflects directly on everything we talked about. And I'm going to teach it next week. I'm going to break the schedule and teach the Bahia Sutta because it, it just gets a very simple direct sutta that gets to the heart of the matter and it gets to the heart of what do I do when I'm conflicted between my heart and my mind? What, what, I, what I feel is right, but what I also am thinking uh, there's a conflict. And in that moment, we recognize anytime there's a conflict within my mind, whether it's between me and, uh, and another person or the, a worldly situation or just what I'm thinking, to recognize this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. Because an awakened human being, a human being that understands what humanity is all about, will have no discontent. Pretty profound statement, I suppose, but that's the point of understanding. It doesn't mean that there won't be things that we would judge as less than ideal, but we understand as a consequence of having a human life, it will be here. Birth, sickness, aging, and death, not getting what is desired, getting what is undesired. In short, again, I'm describing the Buddhist description of dukkha, and he would always conclude that by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha, or stress and suffering. Meaning that in this moment, what, what Louise just described and we all just described is the purpose for a jhana practice. In this moment, I'm experiencing discontent. I'm experiencing a lack of understanding. And so, makes sense, as I develop understanding, that distress or discontent will no longer be here. Does everybody get that last point? Uh, for me, I'm not experiencing the discontent so much in the focused practice, i.e. in the times that we come together like now. Can I... Um, it's, can I say, Louise, that you're, you, you are experiencing your discontent in that manner? 
because it manifests, maybe I should teach, in fact, I think next week I'm going to teach both the hindrances and the Bahia Sutta because they'll be so good in that same, they're both very short because you're just, you're classifying your discontent in a, in, in a slightly different way, that's all. And again, that's not to diminish what you're feeling because it is, it is your issue and it's significant, but it's just another manifestation of doubt and uncertainty coming up in that way. Mm. Well, again, I don't know if I'm fully expressing myself. I guess what I'm sort of trying to understand, I, I, I get the principles and the practice and how it's useful when we sit in focused, intentional space. What I don't understand is um, the principles and the practices when in everyday life. So let's say I'm sitting at my desk and I'm feeling tired. And if I'm using the principle and the practices of jhana, which is I'm feeling tired, feel it, allow it, breathe into it, let it go, what I don't understand is in that moment, could I end up pushing myself over my limit of feeling tired because I'm not actually listening to the fact that so, I'm feeling tired? Yep. Could that have okay, again, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you could just to make the point because you're right there. You're right at that point. When you when you when you're tired and you engage in jhana practice and then you start questioning whether jhana is supposed to make you tired or should you even be practicing right now, you're not using jhana for concentration. You're That's using not the, what I'm asking. I'm not asking about tired when I'm doing jhana practice. I'm saying if I'm just tired in life, the principles of jhana that comes into even if you're not sitting on a cushion, you're still practicing jhana throughout your everyday life. Every um, experience that you have, it's the outside of focused practice that I'm not fully understanding. Okay, again, you're you're trying to bring two two incongruent thoughts together. Your jhana practice is completely separate from whatever physical condition you might have in the moment. It's simply a concentration. It's a practice for deepening concentration. It's not a practice for resolving physical issues. And if you're looking at, or anybody is looking at it that way, or in relation to, not necessarily to resolve tiredness, but in relation to tiredness, it's it, that's not jhana practice. Because right. when I'm tired, I come to jhana practice. When I'm sick, when I have physical pain, I come to jhana practice. When I'm confused, I engage in jhana practice. In my moment-by-moment -moment ongoing life, I'm able to recognize that tiredness is a fact of being a human being. And so right. it's not okay, it. or it's not, it's not a question of okay. now I can accept being tired because it's okay, or that notion, I'm okay, you're okay. It has nothing to do with the value judgment on being tired. It has to do with what is the quality of my mind in this moment. And if I find okay. in this moment that I'm distracted by a physical sensation, I come back to the four foundations of mindfulness where the Buddha teaches us to recognize a feeling as impermanent recognizing mm -hmm. their rising and passing away and come back to the sensation of breathing. So okay. uh, such a key point, Louise, and I hope, I hope you're getting it, I think you are, that mm -hmm. the two really have nothing to do with the other. Yeah, because I think that's what I was doing. I think I was um, very happy with my jhana practice uh, when it's intentional, sat in the cushion, focused time. But I think I was expecting that that would then extend out into day-to-day -day just being with yes. thoughts and feelings and I didn't understand the difference between the two and that's using jhana practice for salvation rather than understanding and that's where the other seven factors of the eightfold path are key because if we don't mm -hmm. integrate the other seven factors our conditioned minds will always be grasping after salvation in one way or another 
And yours might not be salvation from a higher being, but it might be simply bettering a, a self that needs bettering or fixing a broken self to be a little bit more extreme with that. That's a fabricated view. In this moment, what is the most important thing? The quality of my mind. Because that's what, that's what, that's what colors our whole experience of our life is the present quality of my mind. So if in this moment, my mind is calm and at peace, rooted in understanding, whatever occurs will be meaningful. So even if I'm completely exhausted today, I can go sit for 20 minutes and meditate. One won't affect the other. And it might be that I'm so exhausted for 20 minutes. Come back to the sensation of breathing. And in that way, you're not allowing your physical sensation to affect the ongoing quality of your life, not just on your cushion, but off your cushion as well. You'll be at peace with an exhausted day, if you could imagine that. Okay, thank you. Does it help, Louise? Yeah, so next week I'm going to teach the hindrances in the Bahia Sutta because I, I think it'll fit well in, well with what we're talking about. Uh, and I'll put that in the email too so you won't forget it. But if, if you want, go on the website right on the home page is the Bahia Sutta. It would be a good time to just read it and uh, consider it. So any other questions or comments? Um, I know that the timing won't work for some of you, but our uh, midwinter retreat begins tomorrow at 7 Eastern United States time, uh, and it's it's specifically on Pasadi or, or developing a calm and peaceful mind. Uh, I will record the audio sec, uh, sessions. I'm not sure if I'll have the video sessions, and I'll put those up as well. And Louise, I would just tell you too, I know you're putting uh, maximum effort in, but the last two suttas that I taught are also uh, posted now, and I'll post this one up later on today or tonight, so you can, you can catch up too. So, All right, let's finish with Meta if there's nothing else. Right. We'll finish with Meta as we always do. And um, Meta seems to be something that is applied uh, externally, and that is kind of the focus, but apply the tenets that the Buddha is speaking about internally too. So again, take a, take a minute to be mindful of your breath in your body and let that mindfulness relax yourself and unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small. The seen and the unseen. Those living near and far away. Those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. 
by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.